But when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we read this verse in context, we see that there's, there's also a bigger picture around it. And you may have noticed that the apostle speaks the words of verse 17 in the context of warnings, repeated warnings against idolatry. You notice that in verse 7 of the chapter, do not be idolaters. And then repeated there in verse 14, flee from idolatry. And then later on in the chapter again, he, he, he emphasizes and, and, uh, and says the same thing. He repeats it again. So, so what's going on in this chapter? Let's look through the chapter, just walk quickly through the verses starting at the beginning. He begins this chapter by saying, well, listen, in the Old Testament, everyone in God's people that came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea and, and went through the desert towards the Promised Land. They all had the same external signs of membership. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and, and in the sea. What was the cloud? The cloud was the the cloud of fire and smoke. It was the symbol of the presence of God's Holy Spirit on his people or in the midst of his people. And the sea was that water which had separated God's people from God's enemies, literally washing away all the oppressive power of their slavery in Egypt. And they all had that external sign that they They'd been taken out of the Egypt of slavery, and they'd been made into a people of God, a people separated for him. And then they were eating and drinking spiritual food. They were getting that, that bread from heaven that was falling daily. They were getting miraculous water that was flowing from rocks sometimes, places that were most unexpected, where you normally wouldn't find water in a dry rock. And so God was feeding them. God was giving them to drink. God himself, Christ himself, was sustaining them. You see that in verse 4? They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, later on, Jewish legend said that was this, there was this actually there was this rock that bounced along behind them in the desert. And they would drink from it. That's not what the Bible teaches. But what the apostle Paul is drawing our attention to is that over and over and over, from day to day, they lived sustained by God himself. And that sustenance that they received from him was sustenance in Christ, in the Son of God. And so every single one of them participated in this covenant blessing, in, in these covenant signs. God has separated us to be his people. God feeds us. God's, God nourishes us along the way. And so this is really a picture of our baptism and our Lord's Supper, isn't it? God, through our baptism, separates us from the world of sin, from slavery to sin, frees us from the power of sin, and he nourishes us with food and drink in the Lord's Supper. But then look at verse 5. Nevertheless, for all that, for all these gracious signs of God's covenant love and faithfulness and provision, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What Scripture says here is what Scripture often says throughout the pages of the Bible, external conformance to the rites of the covenant 
are not sufficient. Most of them ended up not being admitted to the promised land. And this is an example for us, says Paul in verse 6. It's an example. We've got to learn something here, he says. So what was their problem? Well, their problem was idolatry, verse 7. Do not be idolaters. And then he goes on in the next verses to list a number of occasions in the desert journeys where they gave up trusting in and obeying God, and instead they trusted in and obeyed the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They said, God isn't enough. God can't look after us. God can't satisfy us. We want something different. We want something more, maybe next to God or maybe instead of God. And what happened? When you have all these people in external conformity to the covenant, but with wicked, rebellious hearts, lusting after the things of this world, the things of the flesh, and despising the grace of God. Well, you get what you always get, don't you? The wages of sin is death. You get judgment, you get pain, you get destruction, you get death. And that's what happened. We see that in the verses 8 and and 9 and 10. Now, we must not necessarily conclude that all of those who suffered these judgments in the desert suffered eternal judgment. Perhaps for some of them, it was a precursor to eternal judgment, the judgment they suffered, but not all of them. Look at Moses, for instance. He was not allowed to enter the promised land either. He was, he was punished by God by not entering the promised land. He died in the desert, but for him, it was not an eternal judgment, rather a temporal discipline. So some of these may have been idolaters in the sense of that was who they were. They totally overthrew all faith in God. And others may have fallen into, tripped over, and fallen face down into that sin and were punished for it. But in the eternal scheme of things, were graciously received by God in Christ. And what, what's happening here, or what the point is here, is that idolatry, saying God is not enough. I need something to supplement God. I need something to to replace God. There There are some holes in my life, and I need to go looking for someone to fill those holes, and that someone is not God. Well, idolatry brings terrible destruction, both now and if that idolatry is lived in unrepentantly, then forever. And Paul says in verse 11, look, these things were written down. They were recorded for us. We live in the last days, and the stakes are ever so much higher now. We're not waiting to enter the promised land. The promised land was just a picture of the real thing, of the new heavens and the new earth. And we're almost there, Paul says. We're in the last days. We're on the cusp of inheriting eternal glory. And we need to learn from the mistakes of God's people in the past so that we don't repeat them in our times. And so he says in verse 12, don't get complacent. 
Idolatry is something which wants to attack you and take a hold of you and draw you away from God. This is a spiritual battle. Don't think you're okay. Don't think you're standing. Take heed because you may fall too. You face temptations to look for satisfaction in things apart from God. It's a strong temptation. Strong temptation. And you can fill out in your own life what kind of temptations there are which say to you, I will give you a satisfaction which God can't give you. And one example of that might be when there's a great sports event which just happens to coincide with the timing of the afternoon service on the Lord's Day. It's a great moment to know what it is to have to fight the temptation to idolatry. Something is offering me something which I don't think God can give me. Who's going to win out? Paul says, you know what? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Basically he's saying there is no temptation that is overtaking you that is not human, that is not human-sized. It may be tough. But there is always a way out. God will always give you that door of escape which says no to temptation, which flees to God and seeks refuge and satisfaction in Him alone. Now, this is the verse which often on the internet people complain about because people misuse it, right? Somebody's suffering and they're just totally undone and they're broken and they say, I can't take this anymore. And then somebody comes and says, well... You will not be tempted beyond your ability, so you can probably take some more. That's not really helpful, is it, to hear? But the context here is the context of temptation specifically to turn our vision, our gaze away from God and to fall into the temptation of seeking help and hope and satisfaction in something or someone else. And God says this may be very strong, but it's human-sized. It's, it's, it's in your weight category, in your weight class. You can fight it. In my strength, in my power, I will always give you a way of saying no. I will always give it to you. It may be hard, but it will always be possible to say no to sin and yes to God. And that is a gracious and wonderful promise. And so he says, verse 14, do it. Flee from idolatry. Run as fast as you can. Don't go looking for satisfaction in anyone or anything apart from God. And then he uses the supper as... An example here. He says, when we drink the cup, when we eat the bread, we're participating. You know what that means? Well, this is what it means. Think about, look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What does it mean to participate in the altar? Well, the Old Testament people of God would would bring their offerings to the temple those offerings would be sacrificed before the Lord, and then they would 
often afterwards sit down and have a fellowship meal in the presence of God. And that meal said something. They would eat part of the sacrifice. And and the, the meal would say, payment has been made. Sin has been dealt with. Righteous anger has been appeased. Atonement has been made. There is reconciliation between a holy God and unworthy sinners. All is well. We enjoy fellowship. We're a family. We belong together. God feeds us. God takes care of us. God sustains us, not just as little individuals one by one, but as a people and as a family. And so the meal had meaning. What they were eating and drinking were holy things, which spoke of love and life and forgiveness and communion. And those things were nourishing God's people as they sat at that table and participated in the altar. This is the teaching of Scripture. You are what you eat. We know that from our bodily existence, don't we? If, If all I do is eat junk food then that's going to show in my general health and in the way my body will react. It's going to show. It's not going to be pretty if all I do is eat junk food. And if all I do is eat sickly, poisoned things, then that's going to show even more. It's going to be obvious what I'm nourishing myself with. The scene goes in the opposite direction. When you eat holy things... When you drink from the cup that runs over with the love and grace and goodness of God, then that is transformative and that is going to show. It's going to be obvious. And that's Paul's point. He says, don't be feeding on what the idols have to offer. They've all got their tables. They're all hawking their wares. But idolatry is stupid. Idolatry is a dumb mistake. Why would I want to sit at the table of the idols and drink in their deathly poison, which sickens me and kills me in the end, when I can be sitting at the table with the Lord Jesus, and I can drink in the goodness and the holiness of God, I can be sustained by His grace? You know what idolatry says? You looked at, we saw that in the beginning of the chapter. Idolatry says, well, that's okay. I'll I'll take the the God stuff. I'll come to church. I'll listen to the sermons. I'll, I'll even take the Lord's Supper. It's all very nice. But then in the rest of the week, I. I live real life and I need my backup gods, you know. I I need what they're feeding me too because there are some holes in my life. There are some things that I need to be satisfied and God is not enough. I need some extras. Got to go sit at some other tables and participate in some other offerings, some other worship. Look to some fake gods to help carry me through, to help give me what I need or what I think I need. And Paul says, you know what, that's not going to work. God will not accept that. There are consequences. God is faithful. God's faithful to his promise of grace and life, but he's also faithful to his righteous promise of righteous judgment upon sin. God is a jealous God. And God does not accept an unfaithful, two-timing bride. God demands total 
commitment. Exclusive commitment. And Paul's saying in this chapter that it's absolutely ridiculous, it's absurd to think that you can do both of these things at the same time. It just doesn't work. And I was trying to think of an example that would drive that home. It's a little bit dangerous for me to use an example from sports, specifically hockey, because I know nothing about it, and you know a lot about it. But let's try. You think of an... You may have heard of the Edmonton Oilers. You think of the, the Edmonton Oilers playing against the Calgary Flames, and imagine the game happening, and imagine that the best player for Edmonton comes to every face-off with the Oilers jersey, but the minute the puck is in play, he, he, he switches to the Flames jersey and starts helping them. Well, who's going to put up with that? Well, the crowd's going to go crazy. They're going to boo, and the, and the coach is going to call this guy off the ice, and they're gonna, he's going to get kicked off the team if he's playing for the other team. You can't do that. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. That's absolutely absurd. And Paul says, well, if that's ridiculous, Paul says, well, why are we being ridiculous? When we try to sit at the table with the Lord Jesus and say, you are my all, you are my life, you satisfy all of my needs. And then the next day we're sitting at the table with some pathetic ersatz God that we're looking to, to satisfy us. How does it work? It doesn't. It's one or the other. And so the question the Holy Spirit puts before us this morning is this. What are we consuming? What are we eating? We are what we eat. We are transformed after the image of that which we worship. And that is a very comforting truth for those who are in Christ but a very frightening truth for those who fall down before the idols. You are what you eat. You are transformed after the image of what you worship. And so, for instance, if your God is success, your career, or your Instagram reputation, or your perfect home, and your perfect family, or whatever you consider success, if that's your idol, if that's what you need, if that's what you want, You know what's going to happen? You will be transformed after the image of that which you worship. That which feeds you. That which you feed on. And as we participate in the worship of our idols, we become like them, don't we? We become grasping and calculating and controlling and manipulative and pathologically ambitious as we worship the idol of success. That's just one idol. There are a million idols out there. You can plug in any number of other gods and get similar results. Addiction to pornography or or substance abuse or or, uh, autonomous human reason where your God is your own intellect and you worship it. Or you may worship health as an idol or your investment portfolio in which you seek your only comfort in life, at least, if not in death. We may seek comfort or leisure or pleasure or fun or whatever it is that's an idol out there that's selling us something. 
And as we worship these idols, as we participate in them, as we commune with them, as we seek them to nourish and sustain us and satisfy us, these idols open up a Pandora's box of all the works of the flesh. We are remade more and more after this selfish, self-indulgent, and lustful image. And the more that the idols feed us, and the more they start to change our very being, the core of our being, then who are we going to feel at home with? Who are we going to feel united with? Not the children of God. Not with the saints. We'll start feeling more at home with others who worship the same gods we do. We'll feel more and more distant from the congregation of believers. Idolatry destroys communion. And you know it, don't you, brother and sister? I know it. The more we give ourselves over to the idols of this world, the more it breaks communion with the body of Christ. And Paul says, stop it. It's not good. We feed on Christ. And when we sit at table with the Lord Jesus, he's pouring torrents of grace and love and life into our hearts and lives. And that is a total commitment and a transformative commitment that we experience as individuals. But as individuals, as each of us is drawn nearer and nearer to Christ, we are also drawn nearer and nearer to each other. There is this glorious communion of a multitude of different redeemed sinners drawn into a single, united, holy body of Christ. A body which reflects His grace, His truth, His kindness, His compassion. A body which reflects the diversity in unity which is the Holy Trinity. A body which reflects and is filled with His unconditional and eternal love. And so our text is a call to faith, brother and sister. God demands from us a total commitment, and that commitment is a transformative commitment. Don't be someone who has merely been splashed with water, who has merely taken a swallow of wine and a bite of bread from time to time. Don't be one who only has the external signs of the covenant, but take and eat and remember and believe. Because it's by faith that we feed on Christ. It's by faith that we feed on Him alone and on no other. It is by faith that we say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. When we feed on him, then the power and the glory of the kingdom explodes into our lives. When we feed on Christ, then the very character of heaven radiates here on earth. And the love and grace of God transform our very hearts and relationships and families and congregation. And that love overflows. It pours out from us into the community around us. And so, 
We pray as we will sing in hymn 61. We're going to be singing hymn 61 in just a few moments. We pray, O Lord, thank you. You've planted your holy name in our hearts. Jesus, your Son, imparts true knowledge, faith, and life immortal. You've given us food for our days. You've given us in Christ the bread eternal. And so watch over your church, O Lord. Save it from evil, O Lord. Guard it. Perfect it in your love. Unite it. Cleansed and conformed unto your will. As grain once scattered on the hillsides was in the broken bread made one. So, O God, from all lands your church be gathered into your kingdom by your Son. That's our prayer as we sit at the table this morning. Lord Jesus, as you're nourishing us, as we are being sustained and perfected in your love, gather your church, draw many sinners from darkness to light, and bring about the fullness of your holy kingdom. Amen. So let's sing hymn 61.